and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last time. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl. Well, I'm a screen guy. Oh, Pennsylvania. We love Pennsylvania. I could not think of a better first guest than an old friend, Professor Chris Bork. He runs the Institute of Public Opinion at Muhlenberg College in my hometown of Allentown. Candidly, I grew up on Muhlenberg's campus. His nonpartisan polling outfit is one of only six, six nationwide, that's received an A-plus rating from 538. You know, that's what President Biden might call a BFD. And Chris's work has been cited in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal. The list goes on. He's conducted upward of 300 polls over the last two decades. He knows how to poll Pennsylvania. He knows which way the winds are blowing. And folks, politics is a combination of arts and sciences. So we're going to start this podcast plunging into the data with one of the top political scientists in the Commonwealth. So, Professor Bork, pull up a chair. Welcome to my kitchen table. Political polling is under scrutiny once again, while pre-election surveys suggest if Democrats were in a strong position to make gains across the board, the presidential race came down to the wire, and Democrats were disappointed by congressional and Senate results. Hey, thank you, Ari. Great to be at your table. Well, why don't we just plunge right in? You know, there's so many stories from the 2020 election that one of these days the dust might actually settle from the election. I think coast to coast, the story we kept hearing was polling, particularly, I imagine if you were a Democratic U.S. Senate candidate, you had some choice words for your pollsters. So give us a taste of how polling this cycle maybe differed from 2016. And then for that matter, when you first got into the business. My age will uh, will tell you that I've been in the business uh, a long time, Ari, and so I've seen a generation of changes, and uh, and certainly the last few cycles have been among the most uh, challenging, and uh, I think difficult for those that do public opinion research and, and polling. You know, twenty twenty was a year like like so often the narrative builds that it was a terrible year or the polling was was awful and indeed there were some enormous misses this time around as there were in 2016 there were also a lot of pretty solid polling through a number of very competitive states that were on this year in the end what's happened in the 2016 and 2020 but not so much the 2018 interlude was that there has been a systematic under-representation of support for Republicans, and most importantly, and most notably, the president, President Trump. And that's, that's been a, a really significant factor, I think, in the larger struggles. And I, I, did, I brought up 2018, Ari, because you know not all polling years have Donald Trump on a ballot. And the polls were pretty solid. It was a pretty solid cycle. 2020, uh, like 2016, while on the whole, 
there there were you know some successes there were a lot of what i would consider systematic wide struggles again particularly around the president you know i should have asked you from the jump but how did you get into this? How does one get into polling? You know, I know you grew up outside of Scranton. One day in grade school, were you learning statistics? And you just said, I want to be a pollster when I grow up. That's right. I did a you know, straw poll for the McGovern-Nixon race in, in second grade, and I was, I was hooked ever since. That would be a good story. I could build out a, a narrative, but it's far less exciting. Actually, I studied you know, grad school, empirical public opinion research methods as part of my broader study when I went out. My first job was in Wisconsin, another known swing state. And uh, the school I taught at, a little small place called St. Norbert College in Green Bay, Wisconsin, had one of the, at that time, only polling institutes in the state, established in the 90s by a a colleague. Uh, He decided, Dave Wiggy decided to step aside, and I jumped in uh, and took over the institute. Uh, ran it for a few years, really loved it, fell in love. And when we decided to move back to Pennsylvania, when we our family was uh, young and we wanted to be near near our, our my wife and I's uh, parents and took the job at Muhlenberg, they asked me to basically replicate what I was doing out there. And I said, sure, find me some money. I'd be happy to do it. Uh, that was 20 years ago. And, uh, and that's kind of my path uh, in a nutshell to, uh, to the world of polling. So looking back over the last 20 years, sticking up with your home region, Northeast PA, and now your adopted region right down the turnpike in the Lehigh Valley, why have the politics uh, on the one hand changed so much, on the other hand, been stubbornly purple? Uh, is this something about the demographics or what do you, what do you attribute that to? Yeah, it really is. So, so if you looked at Pennsylvania over the 20 years that I've been back in the Commonwealth, the, the overall numbers, if you look at, if you look at presidential races, you look at, uh, at Senate races, they look fairly similar. You know, Pennsylvania, even before the Trump years, was a place that campaigns were generally close. T- 2008 was the exception. Obama won, you know, handily here, like he did a lot of places. But 2000, 2004, uh, 2012, 2016, <laughs> 2020 have been close races. So on the aggregate level, it looks like well, always competitive. But if you look internally and know Pennsylvania, you could see that things have really been turned upside down, if you will. If you grew up in Pennsylvania and thought, well, where are the Republican areas? Where are the Democratic areas? You'd say, oh, suburban Philadelphia, Republican stronghold, Southwest PA, Democratic stronghold, long union ties, industrial, uh, Northeastern Pennsylvania, where I grew up near Scranton incredibly deep uh, democratic area. And you would say, well, that's kind of the, the makeup that leads to competitive areas. You know, they all put in the wash. In the last few years, you could basically shake it up and turn it around. And, you know, the strongest democratic areas of the state are those, you know, along with Philadelphia, the suburban collar counties around uh, Philly. The Southwest has become incredibly Republican and strong areas like the Wyoming Valley, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre have become much more Republican, including counties like Luzerne flipping strongly Republican. Scranton's a little bit of a stubborn outlier. My Where I grew up, the deep Democratic roots and connections there, I think, have, have kind of maintained its Democratic roots, but not at the level it once was. You put that all together, Ari, and you have the state that remains competitive, but in a different internal dynamic right now in the Commonwealth. Let's just 
stick with it. You know, too often people refer to Scranton Wilkesbury, and it's certainly it's it's one media market uh, that shares the the minor league teams and uh, you know same chambers of commerce, etc. But Lackawanna and Luzerne, from a political standpoint, seem quite different. What do, what do you attribute that to? Yeah, they, they are different. As you said, they're kind of brought together in a region like the Lehigh Valley with Allentown and Bethlehem, Northampton and Lehigh, but they are very different counties. Uh, Scranton had always had a enormously strong democratic tradition. Wilkesbury did also, but as you moved outside of Wilkesbury itself into the you know the the rural areas of the county and it's a pretty big county uh, it had a, a deep Republican tradition in a lot of those uh, those areas uh, that only built over the, the years while in Scranton again if you move into the rural areas of Lackawanna County it's got a, a history of, of some strong Republican areas but the the valley itself the the Scranton its immediate suburbs uh, they're a little more like towns like where I grew up in Troop or Dixon City or Alvin or places like that uh, that had these enormously strong democratic traditions that are really hard to erode even if on other levels it appear like the ripest area in the world to flip to kind of the Trump populism. It's white, it's older, it's working class. Uh, but that that those roots are really, really strong. When I grew up, I always tell the stories. My mom's an old Irish New Deal Catholic and her identity, right? She was Catholic, she was Irish, and she was a Democrat. And that was kind of the the rule, you know, if this, as you move where I lived or down into Green Ridge where Biden and Casey are, are from. And it just was your identity. And that identity, that legacy, I think is very strong with some generations, not impenetrable as we've seen in places uh, like Lackawanna County that have become more Republican, but pretty hard to totally unravel even in a, in a generation or two. Can we go back to uh, the polling? I'm just curious mechanically in this, in this day and age, you know, as we are solidly into the 21st century, we all have mobile phones. And how, how is your team conducting these polls? I mean, it's a, it's a BFD, as Joe Biden would say, for you to get an A-plus rating from, from 538. I mean, is it landlines? Is it mobiles? Is it likely voters, registered voters, or your students doing it? You know, and how how has all this evolved, if at all, yeah, in the last twenty? Years? It's it's evolved tremendously, right? We've seen the change when we when I started. Let's to give you a sense. Twenty years ago, two thousand and one, uh, when we were polling at Muhlenberg, it was all landlines, telephone, completely landline. We did RDD sampling, which was basically RDD is random digit dial. We would, if you had a landline in Pennsylvania. Uh, you had an equal chance of being called, right? So it was purely random. So that's how we did it. And it was it was kind of at the tail end of when that uh, method would allow you to have robust sampling and predictive ability and inferences for populations. Because as everybody knows, uh, right around that time and in the first decade of the, the century, you've seen a big push to people leaving their landlines, going to their cell phones, and basically, only a, a remnant population of Americans still only has a landline. It's very small, and it's getting smaller all the time. So we've had to adapt over time. So our uh, our basically, in a, in a quick nutshell, is we increasingly introduced cell phones into our sampling procedures, calling at first just a small portion of cells and mostly landlines, to the point right now where in the last iteration, 2020, 
we're calling about 80% cell phones and 20% landlines. And that the 20% landline is higher than if we were doing an election poll, if we were doing just a, you know, regular public opinion poll in the state, it'd be more like 90% uh, cell phones and 10% landlines just to reach that small population. So that's been a dominant change. We've also changed from RDD about 10 years ago, we went over to voter files. This is a big debate and methodologically, I won't go too deep into it within our profession is do you reach everybody through a random uh, selection process like RDD polls, or do you target individuals from the voter files themselves? And the idea was voter files might not be complete and changing and there's you know different values in it. And therefore they have some limits compared to RDD, but eventually we were sold that voter files were the better way to go. And so about a decade ago, we adopted that. Gives you some information, right? You could tell, for example, do some pre-screening to see if people actually have voted, how likely they are to vote, pass voting procedures, all kinds of uh, secondary data that you combine with your survey data. And so we've continued on with that. But as you know, and I'm sure your listeners will, will know, it, we're at a place where just doing it the way we do, primarily cell phones, is time-consuming, costly, hard to reach people. We have to take so much more time and effort to get the same sample size that we used to. So for a lot of folks, including us, we have to consider if it's cost prohibitive and how we're going to move forward. So we're always, after every iteration of an election, we're thinking, okay, what's next? What 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 will be our next shift? Well, do you care to reveal any news? I mean, uh, with the night of 2022, <laughs> is there going to be a... Any radically uh, different? Yeah, methodology? I don't know about 2022, but but certainly that's a possibility. Ari, we're looking at perhaps putting together, and this would be a big move for us, but we're kind of at the next stage for the Institute as we enter our third decade, is to perhaps build a, a what's called an online probability-based sample, where we would go out, not right before an election, but maybe over the next year, and start to build by calling people and mailing people so they have an equal probability through the voter files and asking them if they'd like to be part of our panel, our voter panel in the state, where we would uh, recruit them in this way that is probability. But then when we would do a poll, we would do a large section of it online. So, you know, let's just say you we picked you picked you randomly and you still lived in Pennsylvania uh, and you said, oh, OK, I'll participate. So we'd load you in into our system, we'd get some preliminary information, some demographics. And then at certain times, when we would do a poll, we would go out to that group and you might be in any any wave asked to participate. So what it does, and this has been replicated on national levels in a lot of places, it still allows people to be selected randomly. uh, And you kind of then take this intermediate step where you're interviewing them at periodic times in a generally representative way. Now I'm just um, glossing over some of the challenges and, and logistical things with it, but it's something we've been more and more considering over time and have started to look into it fairly significantly at the Institute. Let me ask you, going, going back to uh, what happened uh, the first week of November, there was a lot of trouble if you were a Democrat down ballot uh, and your name wasn't Biden-Harris. And some listeners may not know that Democrats lost the statewide race for Auditor General, the statewide race for Treasurer, where there was an incumbent. Uh, they had a net zero pickup in the state house, in the state Senate. To what extent were you uh, and your team getting murmurings of this on the, uh, uh, on the lines as you were conducting polling? You know, 
this was a tricky situation for us. I had heard some things, not so much from the interviews, because we, to be honest, we weren't doing any down ballot surveying. We had done one congressional district survey in the Lehigh Valley in the 7th Congressional District. This is Susan Wilde's district uh, back in early September. So it was a little dated by the time we came to November anyway. But we were so concentrated on kind of the, well, obviously the presidential race in the state that we weren't asking row office questions. We weren't asking. We did have a general generic ballot question in our poll uh, that we always ask, are you going to vote Democrat or, and Republican? And that was closing up. That was one sign, the one sign that I saw by the time we were getting to November, it was in the low single digits, which was kind of a bit ominous that something was happening, you know, within those down ballot races. But certainly we didn't have the nuanced measures that we would to say, because we weren't polling the Shapiro race or the, the the treasurer race or auditor general race, largely because we not a lot of people follow them. And we didn't think, you know, we'd be getting very valuable information. So I was, talk about surprises. Every cycle, I find surprises. The idea that Biden would win the state. If you told me Biden was going to win and Shapiro was going to win, but they'd lose the treasurer and auditor general, see, I'd say, how? How's that going to happen? Tell me how. And uh, of course, I'd be wrong <laughs> because indeed, uh, that, that's exactly what happened. Hypothetical here. Let's say you join forces with a, a colleague, maybe in the biology or pre-med uh, departments, and you could build a kind of Frankenstein, who's the perfect uh, candidate for Pennsylvania. You, uh, you mentioned, for example, in, in three decades of polling, Obama's 2008 campaign was the only one that was a really slam dunk wide margin of victory. So what attributes, what type of candidate would you say appeals to the largest majority of Pennsylvanians? Or are we just permanently fractured, as, as you were alluding to, with the deep differences between suburban Philadelphia and Southwest PA, et cetera? You know, Ari, this is going to resonate with you from your, from your career and your, your past work. But uh, I would take Bobby Casey as my model. And uh, here's why. I've always said that the easiest path to winning Pennsylvania is as a moderate Democrat statewide. That if you can hold the, the Democratic base, appeal to independents and conservative Democrats, those that often vote Republican, you've got a pretty good path. And that's why when Biden came on the ticket this time, I said, hey, if you were looking down that Democratic list of, of candidates and had to pick one that could win Pennsylvania, Joe Biden would have been my pick, you know, in addition to the Pennsylvania and the Scranton connections and all the things he could build there and all the effort that he put in, eventually put into the state just on paper. Look who wins and wins easily. Look at Bobby Casey. I mean, I think the closest he's come in a race is like eight points. He wins double digit races. It, Tom Wolf. Now, Tom Wolf, of course, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, tough calls is probably leading some public support because he's had to govern in a crisis that is requiring people to make very difficult choices. But he won easily, right? Kind of that moderate Democratic image, uh, you know, beat an incumbent, first incumbent to lose a Republican in the state when he beat Corbett, uh, won by almost 20 points in his reelection bid. Those are the folks, you know, Ed Rendell, although, you know, Ed's, Ed's a a unique character. He's from Philly. He's you know bombastic, and and usually make, Philadelphia mayors don't make uh, your Frankenstein best choice to win in Pennsylvania. But he had that appeal, right? He was one of the first, even when he came in, 
to appeal to the suburb in Philadelphia. It was still Republican at the time and get those folks. So I consistently say, if you're going to win Pennsylvania, first of all, I think it's still an advantage to be a Democratic statewide and to be more moderate. And it helps, by the way, if you go up against a Republican who's not. When people like Lou Barletta uh, or, um, are on the ticket or Scott Wagner, or this time around, although he was able to bring in tons of folks, Donald Trump, and you could energize the Democratic base, right? You could energize the Democratic base from the opposition rather than the more centrist Democrat. You got this perfect cocktail to win the state. And and when when Bob, Bobby Casey won in 2006, I wrote a piece this year for somebody about the model that Biden should follow. Let Trump energize the Democratic base. You reach towards the middle. You reach towards that middle. And in some ways, that's what happened in 2016 on a big scale when when Casey beat Santorum, you know, 14 years ago. It was it, people were saying, oh, Bobby Casey will never get all the Democratic votes. They don't like him. He's pro-guns. He's pro-life. I go, are you kidding me? Rick Santorum's on the ballot. They're going to get every one of those Democratic votes. You mentioned uh, the phrase a few times. I'm curious, uh, both quantitatively, quantifiably, as you've surveyed over the uh, the last 14 years or last two decades, the Democratic base. Uh, has that changed? I mean, certainly there's anecdotally so much of the city of Philadelphia uh, and city of Pittsburgh, different neighborhoods, uh, the Lehigh Valley where you live, quote unquote, McMansions of New Jersey have spread. But I mean, what is the Democratic base and where, where do you see that going? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think about, Ari. It's still Democrats outnumber Republicans significantly in the state, around 800,000 or so. Sure, we'll get new numbers and that kind of play out. But, you know, close to a million voters has been the average Democratic uh, advantage in the state. In the last few years, we've seen that that old base of Democrats, which was largely a conglomeration of urban Democrats in places like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, uh, the African-American population in the state, uh, a lot of working class whites uh, had always been the core of the Democratic base. We've seen, while a lot of those individuals have remained as Democrats, many have either become Republicans in the last few years, especially since Trump's presidential uh, ascension, but also they still, even if they are Democratic, they still may vote Republican more often than not. Uh, and so there's that part of that broad Democratic coalition are folks that are only nominally Democratic. So who's come in? Who's kind of built as we've seen a little bit of that departure? And who's come in, as you mentioned, look at Eastern Pennsylvania, kind of the growth area of the state uh, from Philadelphia up, the, the places where their population is actually growing uh, in the Commonwealth. A lot of those folks that have come in from New York, New Jersey, have, or uh, in some cases, immigrants into the into Pennsylvania, have voted increasingly Democratic. So that's been kind of the, the lift, if you will, for Democrats as, as they've lost some folks uh, that have turned Republican long term. Uh, and then finally, what's become part of the Democratic base, and this is part of the national story that's playing out in Pennsylvania, are college-educated individuals largely living in places like suburban Philadelphia and the Lehigh Valley. That's been an enormous lift to the Democratic Party, uh, largely since, and we think about it now, but I started tracking this in the late Bush years, uh, where you saw a, a, an exodus of long-term Republicans in the suburban Philadelphia, higher educated folks. And they, they like their counterparts that are Democratic, that vote Republican. Some of them still voted Republican, but they've increasingly moved to the Democratic base, if you will. 
I know I'm taking up your winter break. You've been super, super generous with your time. I just uh, two more questions. You know, take a look over the last two decades at Virginia, for example, or Colorado. And these, for all purposes, are now solidly blue states. And Pennsylvania, I don't see anything over the next two decades if passed this prologue that leads me to believe that Pennsylvania is going to be solidly one color or the other. So what, I mean, what, 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 what is it? Oh, I agree with you, Ari. And that is fascinating. You see states evolve, right? Colorado is a great example. It's a swing state that's really, look at last election, and just the, the dominance of Democrats there was on display. And as you know, Virginia, in my lifetime, a state that's really kind of done flip. <laughs> uh, and Pennsylvania is not, it was, it was weird. Again, you might think, Nothing's going on in Pennsylvania. If you just looked at kind of presidential races and the margins, you'd say, hey, kind of, kind of stagnant. There's a lot going on internally, but that internal kind of movement has been, I, I don't want to over-exaggerate, but a bit of a wash. We're seeing, you know, the Republican gains in lots of the areas of the state that are still going to be around. They are losing population. And that's, I think, a big problem for Republicans in the long term. If you overlay maps, Ari, if you, you know your Pennsylvania geography, if you overlay a population gain map over the last decade against presidential elections or any elections, you'll see that those blue democratically won counties are the places where the population is growing here. And the red areas are where the population is declining. So that's in some ways, making it a little more challenging environment for Republicans. And that's why I think it's still harder for them to win statewide races here. But certainly, you're not going to see, I think, based on our demographics, a flip like you would in some other places that are changing, becoming younger and like Colorado or more educated like Virginia. Ours are much more glacial changes. And those Pennsylvania, I always describe to people that it's politics is glacial. <laughs> it's funny. I'm looking out in my window up here in the in northeastern PA. I'm up in in Wayne County in the, the northeast corner, and there's all these glacial remnants everywhere. These gigantic rocks uh, that drawn in the last time. That's how Pennsylvania moves glacially in terms of its politics, its change, and its demographics. Right? It's a state that doesn't see the gigantic demographic shifts over time. They're much more uh, nuanced. So useless Pennsylvania trivia when you said rocks, and I can picture uh, Wayne County, my, my late grandfather and grandmother uh, uh, from there. The Appalachian Trail section, uh, the folks who uh, hike it, they call it Rocksylvania. <laughs> I, I need to admit, I have yet to, uh, to hike uh, the full section of Pennsylvania or even certainly the full trail. Any anyway, final question. What, we have uh, a lot of students who are listeners. What, what advice would you give to, uh, to, to students who might be thinking about pursuing a career as a well, political I, so encourage uh, them to do so. Uh, I think it's, I'm, how did I get drawn in, you know, other than kind of just my career path? I'm nosy. I'm curious. I want to know what people think. I want to know what people want. I want to know what they need. And the enterprise of trying to do that is challenging, but it's, it's valuable. You know, I think we could have a really good debate. We may come back someday and talk about the value of election polls. And I think there's fair critique if, if they do a justice to our democratic process. Non-election polls, I do spend a lot of my time researching climate change and public health policies uh, and views on it. I think trying to understand what the public wants is a noble endeavor, a really important endeavor. So we're not just guessing what the, the public wants at any time. And so students that are looking for a career, and it doesn't have to be in academia, 
It could be with a public uh, organization, a research group, a nonprofit. I work a lot with groups that do public work in the environment and public health, and they so value public opinion research and often employ people or have experts on on staff. And if you're interested in uh, partisan politics, right, getting engaged, there's some incredibly good partisan pollsters that help candidates that you may believe in uh, and help them direct their campaign and give them information. So it's a great career. There's a lot more programs, including down your way a lot in the DC area that really spend time on building the methodologies to do this. So uh, it's been fun. If, if you are going to do it publicly, get ready for a lot of hate mail and people arguing and yelling with you all the time. But you simply say, hey, look, you know, I'll put my number out and then we could talk about it after. Well, I don't think any of our listeners are going to send you hate mail. This has been a, a great, great discussion. Really, really grateful uh, you've taken the time in your winter break. And uh, I'm super jealous uh, that you're up there in the Poconos in Wayne County. But uh, thank you for visiting virtually. Uh, uh, it was great to, to be uh, virtually uh, with you at the table. I'm looking forward to the day when we could sit at a, a non-virtual table, Ari. Thank you having, for having, uh, having me on the show. And best of luck with the podcast. Thanks. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. As Hillary Clinton used to say, it takes a village. This podcast would not be possible without the help of Sarah McGrath and Jake Schwartz. If you liked this discussion, we would love for you to give us a review, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a suggestion on a future guest and other feedback, visit our website, papoliticspodcast.org. Don't forget to follow us on social media at PA Political Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn.